0: Verse 13, from Pappas, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia. So now they're moving straight north across the Mediterranean and landing on the southern coast of what we know as western modern day Turkey. They're then going to largely hang out in this area, Pamphylia and Pergama, where John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark leaves them at this, we don't know why. We don't know why. There's some people who guess that Paul's thorn in the flesh is that he had malaria, and that John Mark also got malaria at this time. This part of the world, modern-day Turkey, well, they've largely dealt with it, but kind of, is infested with malaria. I mean, I even had a girl from our church who went over to that part of the world and got malaria. And If you know anything about malaria, it just keeps coming back over and over again throughout your life in just random patterns. Um, Some people are more um, predictable patterns. Some people are random. And because there were so many swampy lands there, malaria. And so some people think that John Mark left because he got sick and he went back. And that John and Paul didn't. And he just kind of manned it up and went on. And that's why he's angry at him because when he leaves them. he gets really angry later and says i don't want you again because i was able to man it up. why didn't you that's a lot of assumptions that's a lot of assumptions um i only mention it because it's a very popular thing that is said among a lot of churches and people in the pews and that kind of stuff Um, but if you really think about it that's a lot of assumptions a lot of it might be true i'm not saying it's not but it's a lot of assumptions we don't know why he left Simple as that. Probably the closest we could get to maybe is being much younger and getting further and further away from home. There might have been just more of a homesickness, and he didn't recognize people anymore. And he wasn't the one that was specifically called by the Holy Spirit to go. So he might have not felt like he was bound to the calling of God, like Barnabas and Saul. Only those two were mentioned by name by the Holy Spirit. Only those two had the laying of hands upon them and were commissioned. John Mark went along, which kudos to him, but he might have not felt like he had a calling like the other two and there wasn't a reason for him to keep going on. Or maybe it was just kind of go back to college and summer with Erwin. I don't know. There's lots of different reasons. However, Paul seems to think that he later will discover on the second missionary, Paul seems to think that he was totally in the wrong and actually feels like, and actually says they were abandoned. Barnabas defends him and says, no, 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 but we don't know what his defense is or why he's defending him. He just, or if he's just a really nice guy, gives him a second chance. Luke seems to take Paul's side. But is that biases? Don't know. It is really, really hard to know. Is it Paul who's in the wrong and a little, because Paul is, He's a soldier. He's a suck it up kind. I mean, you get this impression that, like, he's. But Barnabas is the first one that sees the good in people. He's the, I mean, right? Without Barnabas, Saul, who knows how long it would have taken him to get involved in the church, if ever, to be accepted. He's the one that, like, people were looking to as we want to know your insights, and whatever you say will go with that because you're full of the Holy Spirit. He is said to be full of the Holy Spirit in a way that Paul never is said to be full of the Holy Spirit is barnabas paul's giving a person another chance especially a young guy fits more with grace and compassion i mean how many chances did christ give peter and all the other ones so i tend to lean more towards barnabas because i just think that's the spirit of the gospel and you're like yeah but you're down in on paul yeah because the bible we're all we all got our issues and there's nothing wrong with saying you're wrong on something so, but in the end, I also say, we have no idea. We have no idea. But compassion tends to be the better route to go. Not that I'm always good at that, but I know that that's the route you're supposed to usually go. So from Perga, they went into Poseidon Antioch, which is up in the middle of the part. And on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets and the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people. Please speak. Here you have to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And I already talked about that at length, so I'm not going to unpack that. Um, but he goes to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And so on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, which would have been a Saturday, he goes in the synagogue and he's sitting in the church. They would have immediately recognize him because remember in small towns, which everything is a small town back then, even the big towns are small towns compared to us. Everybody pretty much knows everybody. And they would know this about him and where he's coming from. People probably would have specifically gone out and greeted them, brought them in and asked, who are you, what are you doing here, that kind of stuff. That's hospitality. They wouldn't just be like, well, who's that person over there? I don't know. And then gone back to doing their things. People would have been delegated to finding them and seeking them out and questions. Yet there's something about them that they're respected. They, they probably immediately realize why. Okay, so normally in this synagogue, they would do a reading from the, the, the law, meaning the, um, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then they would do a reading from the prophets, which the prophets also to the Jew included, like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all that kind of those books. Um, and then they might do a reading from the Psalms or something like that. And so and they, then they would open it up for like a teaching. And so at this point, they invite Paul to do a teaching. Now, why in the world would they open it up to Paul to do a teaching? Probably when they were figuring things out, they realized he was a Pharisee under the instruction of Gamaliel. And that would immediately say, Ooh, a disciple of Gamaliel? Come, speak. Now, what they did not count on is he's no longer a disciple of Gamaliel. He's a disciple of Christ. The Crucified Savior. However, there also would be a little bit less hostility towards Christ, and by a little less, I have no idea what that percentage would be, depending on where you are, because we are way far away from Jerusalem now. For them, this Jesus and the death of the hand of the Jews and the Romans are distant stories. They don't have the emotional charging that Jerusalem did, they don't have all the political, they don't have. They met the Messiah themselves. They're not pure native Hebraic Jews who live and breathe all that. They're the Hellenistic Greek compromise. The ones that the Hebraic Jews would be like, you're bad Jews. They're the second class. So for them, they're going to hear this differently. However, we will find that in some places there will be just as much hostility. In fact, when we get to Ephesus, they will follow Paul across the, the Mediterranean to different cities just to make things difficult for him in those other places. Like, that's committed hostility when you spend thousands of dollars to sail the sea to attack one guy, right? He preaches to them in the synagogue, to the Jews first, and they invite him to read, to teach. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, And you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Now remember, there would have been proselytes and God-fearers in there. God-fearers are people who Gentiles have accepted the faith of Judaism, and proselytes are people who have become a part of the Abrahamic covenant through circumcision. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With a mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. And he overthrew the seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. So he begins to summarize the great act of God's exodus and bringing them the promised land. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. And then the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king, and he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus. Why is he going all through this? Remember, for the Jews, their Jewish history, specifically the First Testament, is the most important sacred thing to them this is the story of god's redemptive act throughout their life yes the bible is super important to us but this is not also our ethnic history as a people and yes when we think of god doing amazing things in the exodus we don't think of a god doing amazing things in my people's past my family line like i can trace all my relatives back to people who were in the exodus all the way up until the exile. Now post exile nobody really knows what tribe they're from. Okay, some did, but then that gets lost even more. But they know that if they're a Jew, that they were they could go back. They know they came from people who were in the Exodus. And so Paul is starting there and going there, and he's tapping into their sacred ethnic family line history. And then he's going to connect it to Christ. In order to elevate Christ in their mind to the sacred, the same sacred level. Now, Christ doesn't need that to be elevated. But remember, know your audience. Know your audience. And so when he goes to the Jew, he taps into that sacred ethnic lineage of history. And then connects Christ to it. Later, when he goes to the Greeks in Athens, he won't talk about the Bible at all. He'll tap into their gods, and specifically the unknown God. And then he'll start bringing the Bible, because you have to know your audience. This is what I tell my students all the time, and we'll talk about that later when we get there. But I tell them all the time, you waste, don't, don't, unless the Holy Spirit says otherwise, don't start with the Bible when you're witnessing to atheists. They don't consider any kind of authority. Now, I'm not saying you can't quote the Bible or reference the Bible, but a lot of times that just angers them even more because they think it's stupid and they think you are for believing it. You start with their sacred texts. Paul went to their sacred texts of the Jews, and then he went to the Gentiles, he went to their sacred texts. You start with their sacred texts. You deal with science and DNA and genetics and and the Big Bang Theory and all that kind of stuff. And then when they realize that you actually are intelligent, that you actually know what you're talking about, and that you actually are making headway, then you bring the Bible in. Yes, you always come to the Bible. And yes, you always go to the Bible when the Holy Spirit says, go to it now. Okay, the Holy Spirit says now, then you ignore everything I just said. But generally speaking, know your audience and start with their sacred texts. Okay, and so this is what Paul is doing. And we're going to see a completely different strategy in Athens. A completely different strategy in Athens. And so he's rooting Jesus into their sacred texts. After removing Saul, he made David their king, and he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, on a side note, I'll mention this too. The new sacred text of America is becoming Satanism and the occult and witchcraft. You need to learn that because you need to tap into that. And I don't mean tap into that power, but... Um, you need to be able to say, like, Christ is greater than that. Christ is greater than that. Or, yeah, you have to do this and this and this in order to have power. But with Christianity, you just have to do this and this and this. Like, that, that contrasting is so important to understand. Know the sacred texts of your people. And if you're listening to this in a different country, then you probably have different t- sacred texts to be aware of. Even the Psalms quote from the Egyptian books. The Psalms. They actually quote from Egyptian texts and that kind of stuff in order to make their points. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, what's interesting is he goes into John the baptizer, which we haven't seen earlier speeches in acts do. And most likely is because John might be even more famous and more known than Jesus out here in the outskirts. Jesus is a politically controversial figure that they've heard about. John the baptizer was an accepted prophet from God from the Jews in Jerusalem. And so, and they also probably don't know John the Baptizer as well because they didn't physically see him or baptized by him. But many of John the Baptizer's disciples have already made it out to this part, way before Jesus even died on the cross. Remember, Jesus only had a handful of disciples, and then when he died on the cross, then the Holy Spirit came John began to send his out way before Jesus died on the cross. And we're going to find out that there are people who have already been baptized by John and are disciples of John way out in the Mediterranean world. And so they would be more familiar with John. And John is less controversial. John was more universally accepted. And so he goes and John looked and acted and talked more like an Old Testament prophet than Jesus did. And that's what made Jesus controversial. And so for him, them, John's like the old prophets. So he goes from the Old Testament or the First Testament to Jesus as the descendant, but then he loops back around onto John as an extension of the Old Testament prophets. In order to, and, then says, and then John pointed to Jesus and said, He is the man. So notice his strategy, why he's dealing with John when other messages have not dealt with John up to this point. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that read every Sabbath there might be a good chance that what they read from just happened to be about Jesus the Messiah. Just like when Jesus went into Nazareth and he read from Isaiah 64 in order to talk about himself. And so he basically is saying is, this Jesus is the only one that fulfilled all the prophets. The prophets that you read about every single day in your, or every single week in your synagogues. Though they found no proper ground for his death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers, verse 27, did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets. So ironically, the Jews in condemning him and killing him was exactly the fulfillment of the prophets that are read every day in the Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried him out, all was written about him. They took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb but God raised him from the dead and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem and they are now his witnesses to our people notice that what's different for the first time in this speech too is normally Peter and all of them said you killed Jesus but they didn't say that this time they said they killed Jesus your fellow Jews but not specifically you. Because these people had nothing to do with it. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising of Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I become your father. He is quoting from Psalm 2-7. And this is specifically a psalm about the Messiah. There are there are two major psalms that are about the Messiah. And that's Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. There's a few other that are minor, but those are huge focuses. This is um, them talking, Today you have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, he stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. This is a quotation from from psalm sixteen, ten, and this should sound familiar because this is what peter quoted from in his speech to the jews and basically once again paul's using the same quotations as peter to show that this is the same ministry as peter to the jews and to the gentiles and now we have jews and gentiles here and he's making the argument that i have from promise that my david says i've been promised that i will not decay i will not decay in the ground and remember way back then, Peter made the point that, but David did decay. And he, there's his tomb over there in Jerusalem. We can like spend five minutes walking and go visit it. Yet, this Messiah did not decay. And so what, Peter, what Paul is saying, like Peter did is, that's a false promise if we're talking about David. But the only way that that could be true is Resurrection. But it also has to be a descendant of David for resurrection. And the only one that meets that bill is Jesus. And even though you weren't there, you've heard all the stories by now. You've heard all the stories by now. For when David had served God's purposes for his own generation, he fell asleep, and he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes and justified from everything, you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. So he makes the point, look, you know the law has not perfected you ever. The law has pointed out your sinfulness. The law has pointed out your lack of righteousness, but the law has never perfected you in any kind of a way. And so, take note from, then he quotes, Hebrews 1, five. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism Followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Many, many people were attracted to this. They heard something, and they whatever they heard from John the Baptist over the sea, whatever they heard about Jesus from over the sea. Paul has come and he's speaking, and he's connecting all these dots for them. But the other thing that's probably really sticking out to them is, Paul is a highly educated Jew. A Pharisee under the tutelage of Gamaliel. And so he brings credentials. And so this isn't just Jimmy Joe Jew down the street that walked in and started connecting dots for them. This is a high, respected, well-educated, elite scholar. And that would carry weight for them. But notice, this isn't, well, just because Paul said it, we're going to accept Christ either. You're not seeing that either. You're not seeing them immediately accepting Christ right here just says so they're interested. They want to hear more. They invited him back. They keep talking. So this isn't just blind celebrity, accept them and follow them. But it also is, you do have credentials and this kind of makes sense. And we've been waiting for a Messiah for a long time and nobody's ever talked like this before, ever. And we're interested. And they keep prodding and urging for more to be said on the next sabbath verse 44 almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the lord that's a lot okay we're talking about a major city here when the jews saw the crowds they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against the paul what was paul saying now just like peter the hostility is kicking up and most likely and i only say this Because this is what happened with Peter in Jerusalem, and this is what happened with Jesus in Jerusalem. Most likely it's the elite Jews, the ones who have power. For you and I, like commoner, we're not teachers. We don't have political power. We're not the elite. When somebody else starts like sharing the gospel and teaching things, we're not likely to get jealous. We might think, wow, I really wish I could talk like they do and make connections like they do. But we might not get jealous. Jealousy is a result of losing power. Either losing power and your friends are going over to them and no longer hanging out with you, or losing power that you no longer have political, economic, financial hold over people anymore. And so most likely these are the elite, the leaders, who are interested. What's ironic is they're like, come, teach. Say something. And now after a few weeks, they're like, I don't like this guy. I don't, I, nobody wants to listen to me anymore. And I don't also, I don't know if I'm about this Jesus guy because just like in Jerusalem, embracing Jesus means giving up your power. If you reject Jesus, you can maintain your power. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of the eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. This is the first time that this has verbally been directly spoken out loud. God intended you to be the people that he used to take the gospel to the entire world. But because you're rejecting it, God is going to the Gentiles and use them to take it to the Gentiles is incorrect to say that his announcement of turning to the Gentiles means that the Jews would no longer be preached the gospel to from this point on, or that they would never respond to the gospel again. Because that's not true. Because in city after city after city after this city, and even when Paul is in Rome in the very last chapters of the book of Acts, He's going to still go to the Jews first. And he's still going to give them a chance to respond. And many Jews will respond, even though many will continue to reject it. So Paul is not saying, God is done with you, Jews. You're being rejected. You will not have the gospel preached to you anymore. Nor will you be able to respond anymore. Nor is God saying that the Gentiles are only being offered the gospel because the Jews reject it. That God never had any intention of going to the Gentiles, but in the Jews rejected, so God's like, well, okay, I'll go to my my second kicker or my second throw or whatever. But I had no intention to use him, But my quarterback got an injured leg, and now I got to use these people over here. That's not the point. Because remember, he just quoted Isaiah, where he said that God created you, Israel, in order to go to the Gentiles. This is his whole point. We can go to Micah, Micah chapter four, and Isaiah chapter two and and many many other prophets where they talked about that the whole point is that god's cosmic mountain would be open up to all peoples of all nations and all languages this is always god's plan the point that is going to be made here in the book of acts is that it's always going to be available to the jews and the gospel is always going to be preached to the gentiles they're always going to have a chance to respond it's just that god is going to open it first to the jews first so that he can use them with the gentiles But when they reject it, he will go directly to the Gentiles with the people that he's already, that the people have already responded. And then he says this, I have made you a light of the Gentiles and you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Here he's quoting Isaiah 49. And he is telling right now, remember Isaiah 49? God specifically said, the reason I created you Israel was not to be my favorites, but was to be my mouth and my feet to go to the Gentiles. The whole purpose of choosing Israel was to send them out to the world. And so Paul is standing here saying, I am here to give you the chance to fully embrace your Messiah and then to become the reason that God created you. But you are now rejecting your Messiah, which means you're also rejecting your purpose and your mission, which means I'm going to go to the Gentiles and go directly to them because that was the purpose of your existence to begin with. What do you do with a hammer when it can no longer function as a hammer? You get a new tool because the house still needs to be built. It's sad because hammers are very beneficial. (laughs) And they're very efficient, but when they rebel and break on you, then they're not useful. And this is what Paul is saying. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored that the word of the Lord and all that were appointed for eternal life believed. Now that's interesting. In Jerusalem, they got mad, and they attacked and they killed, or arrested in prison. Here, they took the warning. And they realize, yeah, the prophets do say that. This is actually making sense. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited God-fearing women and high-standing and leaning men of the city. But the elite, some of the elite still aren't on board. Some of the elite are still not on board. They stirred up the persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. And so they shook the dust off their feet and protest against them went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They were driven physically out of the city because the leaders did not like them. And the leaders stirred up people that they know would be as the Bible in the First Testament like to call them, worthless scoundrels, okay? People are easily bent to power and money to do what power and money wants them to do because they're hoping to get some of that. And they went and they did it and they drove them out. They passed laws. They said high-ranking people. So most likely these are people well-connected and knew how to drive Paul out. Then the hostility was so great that they fall into the next city in order to make trouble there. Iconium is the next place that they're going to go. But notice, in contrast, they were filled with joy. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this is huge. My personality is, no matter how well something might go, all I need is a few things to go wrong. And I immediately dwell on that. I get depressed. I beat myself up. I immediately critique and criticize everything that I've done and accomplished. I feel worthless and all that kind of stuff. And yet... They were so filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit was like, but look at all the people who accepted Christ. Because they did not care about the approval of men. Here's the key. So I'm doing my study in Revelation. And I'm in chapter 13, 14 with the witnesses and stuff like that. And there's this theme that keeps popping up over and over again. The constant persecution and the judgments are coming at the end of time. When you love people, for who they are and wanting them to know Christ. But you don't love people's approval and acceptance and the need for them to like you and the need for them to approve of you because your approval found in Christ is greater than that. That's when they can't do anything to harm you. I mean, they can. But it's not going to deter you. It's not going to slow you down. It's not going to make you give up because you know that there's something greater something greater and that that's hard that's the key now it doesn't mean that you won't struggle with that okay there's great examples of great prophets people even like Spurgeon who really did not I mean he was willing to call out major sins in the church major lacks think horrible things that were coming to the church liberalism and other things and I mean bad liberalism, not just liberalism Okay, coming into the church and that kind of stuff. He saw it five years before it came, and they, and he didn't care. And he struggled with depression. There were days he couldn't get out of bed because he was so depressed. The prophets, Jeremiah says, I don't want to do this anymore. I give up. I'm no longer going to preach the word of God. Elijah even said, I quit. But they wrestled, though, and ultimately in their desire for the people to know God. And they did not care about what other people thought about them because Christ's opinion only mattered the more, or Yahweh, allowed them to take the persecution, the insults, the rejections, and all that kind of stuff, and keep pressing on. Because living the gospel with a smile is not the mark of the true believer. Perseverance is the mark of the true believer. They persevere. And that's the key here, to be so deeply rooted in the security and the approval of Christ that needing the approval and the acceptance of other people in the world or success or power means nothing to you because it pales in comparison. And then you can truly love people for who they are rather than love people for what you will get from it. And then there's nothing that the world can do to stop you. They can hurt you. They can make it uncomfortable. But nothing can stop the Word of God. And that's what I see here. That's why they were able to be filled with joy as they were being driven out of the city and the people that mattered in a worldly sense were rejecting them but that is much easier said than done but the only way you can do that is just to be read the bible again and again and again the only way that you can truly realize who god is and what his approval really is and who you are in god is just to read the bible again and again and again and the more you immerse yourself in that the more your identity changes and the more effective we become.